Welcome to the Recession Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast. Join your host, Sam Newell, as he educates you on how to make profitable, low-risk real estate investments that will cash flow through any economy. Hear interviews with the top real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the country to find out what they've learned and implemented since the 2008 recession. With over 10 years in real estate investing, it has become Sam's goal to help others invest for double-digit returns, but to also stay safe and not get caught in the next downturn. Tune in and become recession-proof. All right, Anna, thanks so much for being on my podcast. I'm excited to have you today. Thank you so much for having me, Sam. I'm excited too. Well, hey, let's, let's tell our listeners a little bit about you, where you're from, what you've got going on. Um, you and I met in a, a great mastermind group, and I was impressed with your track record. And you've done it all until the last year, working a, a, a nine-to-five job. So tell us about yourself. Sure. So long story short, I started investing in real estate, kind of dabbling about 20 years ago. And I got a little serious about let's, let's try to flip a property when I had a baby. So I had a baby, he's almost 17. And when he was three months old, I was desperate to get home with him. So I had a really nice six figure career at AIG. My husband had just started his business or he had six figure school loans from chiropractic Mm -hmm. college. And I couldn't stay home with my baby and it just broke my heart. So all the drive that I had to, you know, climb the corporate ladder, it really kind of went out the window when I held this child in my arms and I thought I could just do what HGTV did and I could flip a house or two and I'd make tons of money and I could quit and be home with them. And it didn't work out that way. Our first flip was kind of a disaster. I was willing to do another one, but my husband said no. And so we, we wow. took a little break and, and we thought, okay, flipping isn't for us. And in 2007, we moved to Pennsylvania to start my husband's chiropractic business. And okay. I knew that we were going to, you know, we sold our home. I was going to be giving up my job. And they agreed to let me try working from home on a three-month trial basis in Pennsylvania. So I said to my husband, I'm afraid to lease space because we're signing a contract for a couple thousand dollars a month. Why don't we think about buying a building, you know, on the main drag in town? Because all these buildings had apartments on top of them. And some of them had apartments in the back above these garages. So I just got into rental real estate initially, just to kind of have a little extra income to come in to cover his expenses. And then we house hacked a four unit. We bought a four unit to live in because I said, it's not smart for us to buy another big house when we're starting a business with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. Right. So I knew rental income would, would help us to get through it if I lost my job and if AIG didn't like this work from home gig. So that's how I really got started with rentals. And you know, suddenly AIG crashed in the end of 2008, mm-hmm. going into 2009. My job was unstable. I was losing a significant portion of my retirement account. And the only thing I knew to do that was stable when the stock market wasn't and my job wasn't and my husband's new business wasn't was my rentals. So I pulled some money from my 401k through a loan and I bought another four unit property and that sustained us. I knew it would be enough money. I created about a thousand dollars net a month, somewhere between there and $1,400 a month, depending on the month. An, an extra income that would just put food on the table in case I lost wow. my job. And the thought was that I was going to lose my job very quickly because of what was happening with AIG. 
So I thought I got to buy more rental properties. And I found it a struggle because not unlike what we're experiencing today, lending tightens up really quickly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't look very good on paper. I worked for a company that was in the news every day, you know, threats of going under. My husband had a new business that wasn't bringing in money and we had lots of debt. So it forced me to get creative and it slowed me down for a while. But I learned about creative financing and I learned about alternative funding sources. And I just decided I have no other choice but to figure this thing out, Sam, because I'm going to lose my job. And AIG, I worked for them in Houston, which was a big city. And if I had lost a job, I could go find another job doing what I did pretty quickly. But in rural Pennsylvania, where there's not much but a stoplight and a few chickens when we first moved here, Mm -hmm. I knew the likelihood of replacing my job with another six-figure job was not very strong. So fast forward a few years, I just started buying small multifamily rental properties. Primarily, Mm -hmm. I did it with four-unit apartment buildings. And it took me several years, but I replaced my six-figure income with a cash flow from that, sold a few buildings that I had made really good deals on and, you know, paid off all of our debt, saved a year's salary and six months for all my expenses. And I finally pulled the trigger and retired May a year ago and then started nice. really scaling into much larger multifamily properties since then. And now I'm an owner, a GP, and an asset manager in just over 500 units. And I'm invested passively in about 2,000 doors. Awesome. Good for you. That's, that's a really cool story. I mean, that's, that's awesome. You, you said a number of really interesting things. But I want to go back to this first flip you did. Take me there and, and tell me why your husband said no more flips. So in 2003, when we did our flip, we really didn't have very much knowledge about what we were doing. And so we bought our property in the wrong location. It was a spring in Texas and it was cool when we started. But by the time we finished, Sam, we were in a property that was facing the parking lot of a big grocery store. And I thought this wasn't that big of a deal because it was an up and coming area, a lot of walkability and shops and little bars and cafes, and everybody wanted to move into this area called the Heights. And so they were like old restored Victorian homes and just a cool area to be. And we didn't think having this property facing the parking lot would be that big of a deal. But in the summer, just as we started to list it, the waft of the odor of the garbage cans on the other side of this grocery store was absolutely unbearable. You could not breathe outside because of the smell of trash. Oh no! And so we learned location, location, location is really, really important. And that kept the property from selling through the summer until we got to cooler periods in the fall where people couldn't smell it. So that was one big problem. We also hired contractors that that didn't do a great job and had to have some things redone. And during the flip, my husband lost his job. So we had two mortgages now, a car payment, a six-figure school loan, one income, and a new baby. And it was just extremely stressful as we ate through our closing costs. All of our profits were just eaten through as we held this property desperate to sell couldn't slash the price anymore because, you know, we needed to make a certain amount of money. And a builder came in during that period and literally tore down all the houses on our block to build brand new 
looked like Victorian condos that were mm -hmm. cheaper than what we were selling our house for. So it took filling those up before somebody came and bought our property. So oh, wow. because he had lost his job, it took so long. We lost about $10,000, which for sitting on it for a year was not bad. I'm thankful that's yeah, how we lost. But his all. risk tolerance was just not there. You know, we're just not doing this again. And Got it. So okay. we just, we didn't do another deal for a couple of years till we moved to Pennsylvania. Got it. Well, you know, that's a really good lesson though, because location is hugely important. And, you know, there's, there's factors that will definitely hinder selling a property. And, and a lot of people don't think about that. They only think about, here's what I'm going to do on this property. They don't think about the grocery store and the smell next door, or they don't think about the busy road. They don't think about the power lines. They don't think about, there's so many things I've encountered as a realtor, you know, I'm a broker where I go to sell these properties for my investors or just clients. And they don't think a huge power line is that big of a, a deal and all the buyers do. So that, that's a really good I, lesson. Yeah, so I learned a lot from that one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you guys stuck with it though, because flips are tough. A lot of people, and you didn't lose that much money. I mean, 10,000 is a lot, but there's people that have lost a lot more. So that, that's a, a nice experience you had to not lose everything, just, just a little bit of cash. But tell me about uh, Pennsylvania. Where did you move to? What part of Pennsylvania? Yes. I'm looking at That's a map right a now. Big so I moved to the Hershey, Pennsylvania area. So a little town called Palmyra that no one's ever heard of, right next door to Hershey, which is okay. about 20 minutes from the capital of Harrisburg. Got it. Okay. Very cool. And it, was it the chiropractic job that took you there or there was just a need for chiropractors? Yes. So my husband's actually from the town. So when we got oh, married, we okay. kind of made a deal. You know, I said, I want to live in Houston and Texas where we can make more money. You can pay off your debt and I can have my first babies around my parents. And once we've paid off all the debt and they retire and move, which we knew was going to happen, then I will move to little tiny Pennsylvania and we can start there. So it was part of our plan. You know, we got out of debt, even with that failed flip, we paid off his school loan and, and moved up here to start his business where we had some family support uh, so that we could, you know, have our kids around their grandparents and my mother-in-law be able to watch the kiddos and that type of thing. Got it. Okay, cool. Well, I actually spent a summer out in uh, Philadelphia knocking doors about 13 years ago. And um, we would, we also went to, it's not Lanca uh, Lancaster. I know that's not how you pronounce it. It's Lancaster, I think. And Intercourse, Pennsylvania. I called is, it Lancaster too. Yeah. And then they'll correct you. They'll make sure they correct you, right? Yes. <laughs> So that's where the Amish are. And, and I thought that was really neat. The, the food that the Amish cook is amazing. I mean, just it's really cool to see, but also really cool to go to their farmer's markets. And the food is just out of this world, home-cooked food. It is for a while. You know, I was kind of, <laughs> it was culture shock for me, Sam, because I moved from Houston, Texas, which is very multicultural. Mm -hmm. So we have every kind of amazing ethnic food from any country you want. Yep. And I was really spoiled with, you know, being kind of a foodie. And I moved to Pennsylvania and I'm like, it's Thanksgiving dinner all day, every day, all year <laughs> long. That's fine. Yeah, so I didn't think about that. I wasn't that. real spoiled about it for a while, but I, I've come to appreciate it. 
There you go. Do you miss Torchy's tacos from Houston at all? Oh, I, I miss all Mexican food. It is my <laughs> go-to. Every time I fly to Houston and, and San Antonio where my family is, I can eat Mexican food the entire time I'm there, you know, lunch and dinner every night. And they're tired of Mexican food because I eat it all the time. And I'm like, just more Mexican food, Mexican food, and then breakfast kolaches. <laughs> there you go. Yep. No, I, I helped do a fourplex development out in Houston and man, those Torchy's tacos and the Mexican food, it's super authentic and, and really, really yeah. good, really good food. Good. Well, so let's move on. So you, you bought a fourplex and that actually, you know, during the 2008 recession, your income was at risk. You were at AIG that which probably wasn't a great place to be if you're trying to get a loan because you're trying to get these loans during a recession, which is already hard enough. Yes. And then you work for a company that's in the news. So lenders probably didn't like you a whole lot. They didn't. And you know, the, the property that I was buying with my 401k. So, you know, this was the very beginning of, of 2009. And so the collapse had already started to happen. I borrowed the down payment from my 401k. So I took $50,000 out to put down on this property. And the day of closing, Sam, a very large bank that I actually used to work for pulled my loan and refused to close it. Really? I was heartbroken. I was devastated. I thought, I have a great credit score. I still have a good job. And if I lose my job, I'll have like nine months severance pay. And I'm just creating more income. And, yeah. you know, I just couldn't believe they pulled the loan. And it was a higher up that the day of settlement was doing their final Q&A review and said, uh-uh, too much risk. And they pulled the loan. Did, so, did the company, did the bank's names rhyme with Smells Wargo or, or anything like that? or Something like that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that happened to yes. me as well. <laughs> Actually, the day of closing, my first flip, they pulled the loan. The day of closing. Wow. And we were able to keep the deal and we found another bank that closed it in like under two weeks, which is unheard of. But That's what we had to do. But I, I had to go to a small regional bank. My realtor was very well connected in the area. Mm-hmm. They believed in my husband's business starting up and coming back into town and, and whatnot. And so they made an exception for us and they gave me the loan, but I paid like a percent and a half more interest rate because it was a portfolio lender. It wasn't being sold on the secondary market. Mm-hmm. I had to go back through the new appraisal process because they, they were tightening up on appraisals and you can right. only use their list. And so, you know, thankfully I got the seller to hold on until I could get it done, but I got that deal done. And then every local small bank, big bank, they just said no. So wow. I tried for a couple of years to get them to let me borrow for buying rental property. And not only were banks, you know, nervous about, AIG and and me and our debt, but they were nervous about rental property at to begin with. In fact, several of them, because so many rental properties were going bad during that time, yep. they they pulled yep. people's lines of credit who had paid consistently, never missed a payment, but who were real estate investors. So our regional banks, even the one that gave me that loan that swooped in and saved the deal, they closed several hundred thousands of dollar line of credits for local businesses and real estate investors. Um, and it, it was a big, big deal. So lending tightened up and it became very difficult. Like I had the knowledge, I knew what I wanted to do. I'm like, if I can just buy a few of these things, I can create, you know, enough income that if I lose my job, I'll be okay. But I just could not get the loans. And at the time, Sam, I didn't have the wherewithal 
or the understanding about private money that I could just try to find somebody else that was doing it. And I knew about subprime lending and I had been involved in some subprime lending when I worked for Bank of America, Uh but the subprime lenders were all closing and going under too. So it was very, very difficult till I finally figured out how to find properties and, and convince sellers to sell them to me on terms and seller financing. Yeah. I mean, that was the name of the game for a while is you got to do seller financing. We actually today are putting our hotel under contract and we're selling it seller financing because banks in this coronavirus, they've just lost their minds. They've totally tightened up. They don't even want to talk to people about hotels. They, they wouldn't not even basically we're getting hung up on. We were going to refinance, pull some cash out, then do seller finance. And but it's just crazy. So that's one thing that I think a lot of people don't understand when they ask the question, should I wait till the next downturn to buy something? And I always say, if you find a good deal, buy it. It doesn't matter. Find a good deal and buy it. But when the recession comes, and I think this coronavirus is a very, just more of a blip on the radar, but when the big recession comes, you're probably not going to be able to buy anything for a couple of years. Yeah, it's it's a tough balance. And so it's really kind of navigating, taking the experience that hopefully, like for me that I had in 2008, allowed me to be pre- more prepared for this so that I'm able to still do some deals. And mm-hmm. part of that's because I struggled through trying to figure it out before. And I missed out on a lot of deals because I couldn't figure it out and because I didn't have the cash. You know, when I started right. out back then, we started with $700,000 in debt, Sam and no money to our names. We had paid off all of our debt. We had lived below our means, but we started off with a ton of debt and job a job that was unstable. So right. I had to really get creative, but I learned resilience and I learned creativity and never taking no for an answer. But even with that, it's going to be tough unless you have cash. So for me, thank God, we were able to really build this financial freedom despite all of those hurdles. And I believed that we were at the top of the market cycle before Corona hit. So I truly believe that we were going to head toward a recession just mm-hmm. based on all of the knowledge I gained over the last 10 years, you know, before 2008 and nine, I understood investments really well because I had that background, but I did not understand economic cycles, you know, and, right. and market cycles and real estate cycles at all. And we were blindsided like many were when, when there was a downturn. So I became educated. I became a student and I learned and I saw, hey, a recession's probably coming. We don't know when, but I think it's soon. And I started to sell some properties so that I did have cash so that when we hit a recession this time, I'm going to look much, much better to lenders because even though I have rental properties and even there, though lenders are nervous about people with rental properties when, when there's rent strikes throughout the country and there's legislation talking about, you know, rent forgiveness, right. it makes lenders nervous. But if you have experience and you have cash and they can see that you've managed risk well, well, there will still be deals out there. But for those that don't have that and aren't in that position, it's going to be tough. You're going to have to get really creative, find partners with experience that are willing to work with you and find other money sources or get really creative and, and good with seller financing. To, to get deals done, but you just have to be patient. It's not going to be like it was pre-corona in the next couple of years. It's going to be tougher to get deals done, even if you can find a fire sale on deals. Yeah. And I agree with you right now, we are working on a deal in Cincinnati where the, the lender has delayed us two months now. 
we should have been closed. The money's raised. We're ready to go. And he's delayed. They've delayed us two months. This is a Freddie Mac, not just a lender, but Freddie Mac has delayed us. Wow. Wow. We've got another deal that we were ready to put under contract and we stopped because we were getting delayed on this other deal. And then another lender asked us to bring in another $2 million on a deal. We were 20 days away from closing. Wow. Wow. So yeah, lending can really tighten up. And I love that you have cash available. I love that. That's so smart. If I could, you know, one lesson I've learned from the last 10 years talking to very successful business owners, investors, they all say the same thing, have some cash available because A, you look better as a borrower, B, you can take advantage of opportunities. Yeah. And you can weather these kind of storms. You know, I'm, I'm so thankful when I started out at Bank of America and private banking, you know, it was all about always utilizing your money, always having it working for you, never letting it sit idle and sit in cash. But I was surprised that a bunch of our clients that were very wealthy did want a lot of their money in cash. And I'm like, I can put it to work for you and these investments and they they wanted cash. And so I saw that, but I never really had cash for a long time because even with our investments, we, we stayed living on my income. And by the grace of God, Sam, I don't know how, but I, I survived AIG and I didn't ever get let go. And I left on my own terms, you know, awesome. 10 yeah. years later, but I didn't, I didn't live on that income. Everything we made, we turned to keep buying more and more and more and growing so that when I made that switch, it was, it was seamless. You know, I didn't feel that the impact of retirement, but I, I had that mindset of why would I keep cash when I can use it to buy another property? So yeah. I didn't keep a lot of cash. I, I ran very, very lean with just, just the six month, you know, of expenses saved and every chunk of cash I could, I, I put into growing and buying more and more and more. But well, because hold on I, a sec. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm smiling. I'm trying to put this nicely. Um, I have a lot of investors who running a lean property means they have, don't have any months uh, expenses set aside. And that's something I've been preaching. I'm so glad you said that. So you're talking about having more than just six months of expenses set aside. You're talking about having six months plus plus cash to deal with with renters not paying, deal with huge repairs, large repairs, you know. And I think that's really important. And that's what I've been teaching my investors who buy buy these townhomes or fourplexes from me here in Utah or Boise or, or Houston, you know, have six months set aside plus some. And, and I had, I actually had investors texting me in March saying, I don't know what I'm going to do if they don't pay in April. And I'm like, well, just go to your reserve account. And they're like, no, I've never put money in my reserve account. Yeah. And, and Sam, I, I was the same way in the beginning because yeah. for me, we didn't have money and we were trying to create cash. And I'm like, I knew enough about finances and thankfully, you know, I, I understood how to navigate those things. So I, created business credit cards and I operated on 0% credit cards for a while. And I had big enough, you know, credit card lines that I thought, well, if I get into trouble for a month or two, I'll just charge the repair and then I'll pay it off. Right. And I did that for a while because I, I just had to keep buying more cash. I knew it was dangerous, but mm-hmm. I mitigated the dangerous best I could by having a bunch of lines and keeping them at 0% and available. And you have Hard. to, you have to balance your risk tolerance with, risk of using up your cash, but then what if something happens? And I think now we've seen more risk of not having cash than we ever have, including 08 and 09, because now we've had real people being told you might not have to pay rent and people can't evict you and they're losing jobs. And so, you know, I would, I was very nervous at first, but I'm like, okay, 
you know, I did a, I did a recession analysis. I did, and I did this with my financial advisor at the end of last year for all my properties and said, if a recession comes, cause we believe it's going to, mm-hmm. what percentage of rents can I absorb and break even and still pay my mortgage? Even if I don't make cash, how much will I have left? And I knew what that number was. And I decided to sell a couple properties so that if that happened, I had the cash. And it was hard because I'm like, now I'm giving up income, you know, 10 years more of income that I wanted on this property. But I believe it's the hype. I'm selling top dollar too. Mm -hmm. I'll have to put in repairs over the next few years. So let me take that cash and make sure that I'm recession resilient personally, plus each one of my properties. And it's allowed me to go through this period with so much less stress and hope than I did 2008 and 2009, even though my world was falling apart. So it takes cash and it takes time to build that up. But I think it's really, really risky. And I I know personally, several multifamily investors who are in the middle of huge value add deals, depleted their reserves, depleted their CapEx and depleted their OpEx. And they're having to ask for forbearance because they can't cover a single month's Um, mortgage payment. And their investors are at risk of losing all of their principal if the bank has to take the property. And unfortunately, that that happened in 09. And it's Mm -hmm. happening on a larger scale because this recession is also bringing COVID and rent strikes. So it's very, very dangerous. And I I learned the hard way. But again, thankfully, I I learned, I really preach to people, don't jump into huge deals. If you haven't made the mistakes and taken the risk on the small deals, fail small, fail with small money, and then learn and get really wise and then grow to, to bigger deals and bigger money. Awesome. I love that. And I love that you did a recession analysis. That is so awesome. I mean, the name of my podcast you can see is recession proof, you know, learn how to become recession proof. And I love that you did that and you analyzed each property and you said, here's my average income. Where would it go if a recession hit? Okay, my income is going to go down. Are all of my expenses still covered? And that's exactly what we do every time we buy a property. We say, okay, what happened in the 2008 recession? Now we're going to say what happened in the 2008 recession and what happened during coronavirus? Okay, that's a benchmark. What would happen if that happened to us again? And could we still pay all the expenses? And, And we just don't buy deals unless you know, we could have a huge drop in income and still all the expenses are paid. I know, I know you're the same. And we have a six month contingency fund, you know, our operating expense fund. And still, you know, we want to make sure we're extremely conservative, but I I want to go back to what's that. I just want to add one thing to that too. I think the the only reason people don't do that, well, there's, there's a couple of reasons. Sometimes you just underestimate the rehab costs. And so people burn through that, the, the rehab costs, but they keep going and dip into reserves instead yep. of saying, we're not going to turn any more units until we've built this back up and we've got to keep these reserves. Smart, the other yeah. thing is investors are, you know, at the top of the market, investors expect a certain IRR. If you're syndicating deals and you have a lot of limited partners, they got really spoiled over the last few years, oh, yeah. high IRR deals. And so in order for for operators and syndicators to make the deal look good on paper and say, we're going to get you this, you know, 17, 18, 20% IRR, they have to raise less money so that they return a higher IRR in each dollar. Yep. It prevents people from, from, from having a healthy reserve account because they have to raise more money and they might not quit quite hit those targets. And so 
I've been really careful to talk to my investors and my partners, whether they're limited or general partners that we're sharing, that we've got to be realistic and balancing. You know, IRR, it's complicated, but there are so many factors that you can't control, like inflation and recession and what's going to happen. How does that impact IRR? So for me, I look at what's the the risk-adjusted return. I'd much have rather have mitigated some risk and decreased the risk and ha- and show a, a lower monthly income and a lower you know back end appreciation and know that I've got that stability and that preservation of capital built in there because I've got a safe deal and make a little less money and that's what a lot of people really want anyway. But if they're used to you dangling the carrot of a high IRR. It's going to make you make, take some shortcuts that you shouldn't take that put your deal at risk, such as not having a healthy reserve fund. I love that. Thank you for making those points. And, and when I'm working with an investor, looking at a, an OM or, or showing them the, the info about our deal, I'll make those points. I'll say, look, look at this line item. That's six months of working capital. Most operators in today's market are doing two to three because they want the deal to look better. Right. Knowing that that's not enough. Right. Also, we're putting money away every year for a potential capital expenditure. Other operators are not putting that money away. They're saying that they'll handle those things from cash flow. And so just like you're saying, people want to do deals so bad, they're willing to fudge the numbers. And I hate it. And, you know, I just got asked a question from an investor yesterday. He sent me a deal from Phoenix, some some triplexes and fourplexes. And I said, I said, Chris, the, these numbers aren't even close to conservative. In fact, they're optimistic and they're probably 10% low on expenses. But if you're chasing cap rates, it, the cap rate looks really, really good. You know, So I, I get frustrated with investors that are chasing cap rates or cash on cash returns without understanding exactly what you just said, that the other numbers are very important. Right, right. And I think you have to really look at yourself as a as an investor, because I'm a passive investor in other people's deals, just like I'm an active investor in my own deals. So Mm -hmm. I'm really, really careful with what I invest in. And you have to look at yourself as an investor, as an an operator who knows your investors and say, what is their financial goal in life at this phase in their life? And what is their risk tolerance? And so if somebody's goal is income and they want some consistency and some preservation then they're going to look at a totally different kind of deal and accept a much lower IRR to have that safety of principle with safety of income. Yep. Other people are going to say, I, I just want the appreciation. I don't really care that much about the cash. It's in a retirement account or whatever, but I'm young. I'm willing to take the risk. And those yep. kind of investors, those are the ones that everybody's targeting. But mm-hmm. a lot of the investors that are really coming in really don't have that risk tolerance in that time horizon. So they yep. don't understand that they're, they're creating more risk and they're giving up, you know, preservation and protection in exchange for that because a lot of operators, to be honest with you, don't even understand thinking about investments in those buckets. Like, is yep. this for preservation, income or appreciation? And where is our risk tolerance? And are my investors risk tolerance aligned with this deal? And because of my background, I'm just always thinking about that kind of thing. And it helps me to, to make better, safer deals, even though they may not look as sexy and have as much upside potential, they're, they're definitely safer and, and providing consistent income because that's just where I am as an investor. You know, I took yeah. a lot of risk in the beginning and now that I've built, you know, a strong net worth and a lot of cash, I want to preserve that. 
you right. know, so I'm not going to put it at risk or put my investors at risk. So I think, I think operators are going to learn from this um, because of how hard this is hitting many. And I hope that that leads to more conservative deals that have a lot more safety built in through cash and liquidity. I love it. Yep. And I agree with you. And, and the thing is, is a three to 5% higher return on paper doesn't necessarily mean that you'll actually get it, you right. know? And, and so it's called the bait and switch. You know, if, if you, it, it, it's just interesting to me that people don't see through those things, but I wanted to get back to you and how you retired from your job. Tell me about your portfolio, how you built it exactly. What types of deals were they? What types of units? How did you buy them? And, and how did you finally replace that income and retire last year? Sure. So, you know, it doesn't sound as sexy as saying I started out in big multifamily and had thousands of doors. Okay. Mm -hmm. I didn't. I started out on a small scale buying primarily four unit apartment buildings. So it's considered on the residential side. Mm -hmm. But what I found was that I was able to buy a four unit apartment building. Number one, because there were several of them on the market in my area and there weren't that many people chasing them. Most really? people were chasing the single family flips buying a duplex, living in one side, renting out the other, or they were chasing much bigger deals. They had much more money and were going straight for the bigger commercial. In my area, they would sit on the market for months. So I was like, you know, they give me more income because it's four units and I can have one vacant at all times and still break even. Yeah. And there's not many people buying them. So the sellers are wanting to sell them. So why don't I create this my niche and I'll go after it? So I looked at where's the opportunity in my area? Can I make money doing it? And that just became my sweet spot. So I bought up and targeted off-market sellers and owners of four-unit apartment buildings. So if they were listed, I went after them and I negotiated them hard. And I negotiated them using the, the income NOI valuation model not mm -hmm. the price per door comp model. So I would go to a seller and say, or to their agent, who many of their agents were like, who are you and where are you coming from? And we're not doing this. This is crazy. But I made every offer saying, listen, your property is an investment property and investors are looking for a certain return on their money called a cap rate. And so at your property, when I can go buy any other investment property and get a property at a nine cap, then your property should only be selling at a nine cap. So here's what I believe it's worth based on the numbers you gave me, your income, your expenses, and this cap rate. So even though four units are kind of valued on a cap rate income basis, but then they tap out on a price per door or comp basis, mm -hmm. I gave more weight in my offer to how I looked at it as an investor. And I was able to convince most sellers to sell them to me based on cap rate and get a really good deal on very poorly operated properties where, for example, here in the Northeast, most people have oil. Well, the cost of oil was really, really high. Mm -hmm. So some of these four units had $4,000 oil bills. And I'm like, wow. I could convert that thing to gas and get it down to $1,500, save significant money and increase my return. So even though I wouldn't be able to sell it for as much as I would be able to sell a, a larger multi-unit for, for the same bump in um, NOI, mm -hmm. I still was able to create a significant return for me because I bought them at a lower price point. And then I cut the expenses mostly by converting them all to gas and putting water saving devices. And they were all poorly updated, poorly maintained, like 1970s to 80s interiors. 
And my husband and I put in the sweat equity, Sam, and we learned how to do it because we didn't have any money. So we painted till two o'clock in the morning. My husband learned how to do windows and cabinets and countertops and floors. And we did it together. And we, one unit at a time, updated them, raised the rents, raised the value. And then as soon as we finished that, it usually took us six months to a year to do a whole four unit apartment because we were doing it on the side by ourselves, not with the team. Mm-hmm. we would cash out refi. And I got to a point where the banks would allow me to refi if I had bottom with owner financing. Once I could prove the rents and once I had built right. that track record for a few years, I got the banks to start saying yes. So it was wash, rinse, repeat the Burr method mm-hmm. on four unit apartment buildings. We took a few singles that were a foreclosure that I found an auction or whatever. And we did the same thing. So with singles, instead of doing a flip, We did end up getting kind of back in the flipping. We just held them instead of selling them. We bought some, you know, that maybe we bought for $50,000 that we knew would be worth one thirty when we were done. And my husband put in the sweat equity. We hired the big things that we couldn't do ourselves. Mm -hmm. And we'd make, you know, 40 to $50,000 when we'd cash out. And that would be the chunk that I used to buy the next three or four unit property. And that's how I really created the six-figure rental income that create that allowed me to retire from my job well before I ever started doing larger multifamily deals. That's awesome. I love that. And you said something, you know, basically your your business plan was find a niche, negotiate really well, buy creatively, and add value and, and raise rents. And I love that because there's so many people that they just want to do what everyone else is doing. Yeah. And and you, you have to find a niche. So I've sold about 50 of these townhomes here in Utah. You cannot buy a duplex or a fourplex for a nine cap or even a six cap in Utah because of the hot job market and all the people moving here. But what I found is I can sell these townhomes and I, I own four of them myself and you can get a much better cap rate. And actually you have amenities and things that attract renters. Yes. And your return is much better and it's a, it's a more of a hassle-free um, property for my investors. So right. finding a niche is so important. For sure. For sure. And when you do it on your own, you know, in hindsight, there's, there's things that I would have done differently with the knowledge that I now have today, where mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that's necessarily the fastest way to do it today, but it's still a powerful way to do it. I still retired, you know, 21 years early doing this one rental at a time, you know, but the other thing is I created infinite returns for myself. So my only real money in the deal was the 3% down on the first one I house hacked and the, the money that I took from my 401k, everything else I'd use 0% cards and lines of credit and equity from other ones. And then I'd pay them down and I'd do it again. And so my returns are truly infinite returns on every single thing I did. And I used almost no money other than my 401k and created millions of dollars in real estate through putting in the time and and doing the deals on my own. I did start partnering with one person at a time on a couple of assets, which allowed me to use their capital. Mm -hmm. And then we used my knowledge and and our sweat equity, Mm -hmm. you know, to, to do the deals. But what I found going into larger deals when I did decide to scale into larger multifamily, because before I pulled the trigger on the retirement notice, I got ready. You know, I saved mm-hmm. money. I sold properties. I had cash so that I would remain bankable to banks after I left my job. Right. And I said, I'm going to have to create some more chunks of cash mm-hmm. so that I can keep doing these deals. And so I knew 
I had always wanted to do bigger deals. I just needed to now take my experience and find capital partners to partner with. And so I did start doing some joint ventures of bigger apartment buildings, still not huge, sexy buildings that everybody's paying top dollar for where I'm competing with hedge funds. But we bought, you know, 73 unit building, 31 unit building, 96 units. So we bought those as joint ventures with three partners and those created big chunks of cash, which allowed me to have some cash and dry powder along with the income and whatnot. So everything I did on a small scale is what allowed me to be a really good conservative operator on a larger scale and now be able to to give other investors a return doing everything I had always done all on my own, but now we're doing it with partners and we're just doing it on more number of units at a time. So I'm really thankful I went from the small units doing it alone you know, and then to the big units because it made me a much better, well-rounded investor. And now I'm still doing it with very little cash out of pocket, but I'm putting my knowledge and and my skills and my experience to making those returns and doing it with others. Awesome. I love it. You know, we started the same way. I started with a a flip and then moved into duplexes and fourplexes. And now I'm just doing larger multifamily. But, you know, I have a question for you because Grant Cardone who I view as a very uh, smart individual, smart investor, great authority in the space. He says, never buy something under a 16 plex. And I disagree. I do too. I, I say you need experience and you need to buy good deals. Right. So I have a minimum, uh, basically a, a, a minimum uh, criteria of any deal I buy. You know, They have to be a certain cap rate and have a certain upside but my question for you is, would you tell someone to start with a duplex or a fourplex or to put their search efforts into starting with bigger complexes? I, I think that I, I don't have a one answer for you. And there's a reason for that. So mm-hmm. I think before I, before I answer that, I want to answer the Grant Cardone question because I've been asked this before. Mm-hmm. So one of the things is when you're talking about doing deals with other people and with partners, especially if you're going to syndicate the deal, mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense to do small deals together often because yep. the cost of just putting together the legal paperwork and the SEC right. filings and whatever can become quite high. And so yep. you have to have a certain deal size where you're making enough money in the cash flow on that deal every single month that even though you're having to raise more money to pay for all those legal fees and to pay for the time and the cost that's involved in making investor payouts every month and every quarter and producing reports, it just makes sense to do it on bigger deals. I'm not going to be able to bring three or four investors in to help me buy a, a single or a duplex or a four unit. We would never make enough money. So it just doesn't make sense. If I'm buying deals for my own portfolio with my family that I want to bank on that money for the next 20 years, my husband and I still buy four unit to 10 unit complexes for our own portfolio. So I make a big chunk of cash on a big deal I'm putting together. What do I do with that cash? I buy smaller properties that are creating legacy wealth for my family that I don't have to worry about when do my partners went out. I've got Mm -hmm. to turn it in three to five years. Like this is my, this is my nest egg over here. That's, this is the money that if we decide to stop all the work today, never do another deal, retire on an island, you know, never work again. If we wanted to, that's the money that allows us to truly have financial freedom and never work another day of our lives. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to knock the small deals because the small deals are what really create net, you know, true 
um, infinite returns. If I have any money in it, I'm still making at least 20 to 30% on my money all in on every small four unit property I, I do. Yeah. Where if I'm doing a bigger deal and I put it together, I'm going to get a bigger chunk of cash up front because if I have partners, I can charge an acquisition fee to bring them that deal. So it's nice for chunks of cash. But my actual piece of ownership in that deal as an operator, if I'm splitting it with a bunch of people, is pretty small for most syndicators. And most people don't realize that. So that small chunk that I'm making in cash flow, I'm not going to have it after three years. If I do it really well, I'm going to have some upside and have a big chunk of cash again. But then what do I do with that money? For me, I'm not going to put it in the stock market. I'm not going to put tons of my own capital in, in more big deals. I'm going to reinvest it in smaller properties for my own family where I can create 20 to 30% control returns with control and that I can pass on to my children and their children and create generational wealth. So I think of investing, Sam, as a lifetime continuum of what your financial goals are. Kind of like we talked about earlier, we have a period of our life where income is most important. We have a period of our life where the growth and the appreciation is most important. We don't need the cash anymore. And then we have a phase where we're ready to just preserve it and and back off a little and not have to work as hard to generate that income and those returns. And so I'm at a place in my life where I started out, it was all about the income. Let's just replace the income. And I could not have done that with the knowledge and the tools and the experience that I had in 08 if I had tried to jump into becoming a multifamily syndicator because I didn't Mm -hmm. have the skills to do it. I didn't have the money or the network. What I would tell someone today is if you don't have money or skills or experience, Yes, if you want to go big with multifamily, start learning it. Start partnering with some people. But do your own deals and learn how to do it on your own on a small scale first and create both buckets at the same time. If you have cash today and you have some experience, you've done some single family, you've done some small rentals, you're in a totally different level of what you can do and the risk that you can take. And I'd say go for bigger deals. You know, if you can take $100,000 out of your 401k thanks to the CARES Act without paying a penalty right now. Yeah. I probably tell you to do your own deals or partner with one or two other people, create a joint venture and create, you know, 20-30% returns for yourself easily rather than putting it in a syndication that you're going to, you know, have to sell in a couple of years. I love it. I love it. And and I agree with you creating an infinite return. If you can create those returns for yourself where you put money in, you rehab it, you pull that money back out by refinancing and you keep that deal and it keeps cash flowing great. The the only thing I would add and that I would maybe um, change is some people can't do that in the market they're in. Utah, I will never be able to create an infinite return on a fourplex. Because you yeah. can't get them at a, at a good enough price. You can't get them at a good price at all, even if they're trashed right. They're selling with multiple offers. Right. So then I would say, look for a medium-sized deal because you can still get infinite returns, maybe in an Albuquerque, a Cincinnati, somewhere. You probably will have to partner with some people, but it's going to be a heavy lift. And yeah, minim- minimize your partners if you can, just like, just like Anna's saying. But I do I've, like bigger deals. I think you should go for the biggest deal that you can do mm-hmm. with the network and the resources that you have. So Sam, yep. if somebody says, I have some experience, but I don't have cash, but they have a network that has cash, that's willing to partner, go mm-hmm. for the biggest deal you can do together, yep. but don't, don't go out and start on a hundred unit property and raise capital from a bunch of people when you've never managed or, or run a property right. before. Because right. you're just creating way too much risk for yourself and others. So 
I'm agnostic as to the number of units, mm -hmm. depending on your personal situation, your skills, your time, your money, your resources, yep. and your network. But go for the biggest one that you can that matches your risk tolerance and your financial goals with, with as few as, of partners as you can on your yep. first few. Absolutely. I'm with you. And, and um, man, I wish I could create infinite returns for my investors here in Utah and, and find those rehab deals and the value deals. And, and you will find them once in a while. But I, I'm just, man, what you did was awesome. So you've created this generational wealth. You've been able to put a lot of sweat equity in and, and that experience is invaluable. So I agree with you. Anytime you can do a small deal, get the experience, go do it because that's very important. And then scale up as fast as you can as far as long as it makes sense. Right. Um, and, and I think that's great. Let's see. I had one more question for you. What was it? Oh, um, you talked about your, your portfolio being recession resistant, recession proof. Talk to us a little bit how you've done on rent collections through coronavirus. Great. So in central Pennsylvania, we are at 99.5% collected. I have wow. one person who couldn't pay out of 262 units in Pennsylvania. And we used their security deposit. They left it nice. They were leaving anyway and moving out. And okay. so, you know, we've basically been made full with that, but he didn't actually pay it. And okay. we, have, we ended up a hundred percent for April. So it, wow. it was lower. It struggled a little bit, but we were able to collect. But part of that is this, Sam. So when you have slightly smaller communities and they know you or they know your management company, you're good to them all the time. And you're good to them in the way that you treat them through the crisis, you will do better. Mm -hmm. So part of it is we, we have tight knit communities. We treat them well, we keep our properties nice. And we very proactively did the exact opposite of what many people said they were going to do. Mm -hmm. We wrote a letter that was very gracious that said, we understand that this is a really difficult time. Yep. There's a lot of misinformation in the news. There's a lot of misinformation about whether we can stop paying our mortgage and you can stop paying your rent. We can't, we really need you to continue to pay rent so that we can keep your community nice, keep it clean, keep it safe. But we understand you may be impacted. And if you are, we want you to let us know right away. We will work with you on a payment plan. We will not charge you late fees. Nice. We will work together to keep you in your home, but we need you to communicate and work with us. And people called us right away, those that had a problem, and they have faithfully made payments and made it a priority. So that's one thing. The other awesome. thing is, my criteria for buying deals, I've learned and gotten much smarter over time. So I only buy deals where it's based on a business model of people who actually can pay and who have a backup plan and some savings. So we buy you know, properties in class A to B areas, but that are older, you know, maybe class C buildings. We fix them up, not to the top of the market to try to match the best players. We try to offer a little less Mm -hmm. Still very nice at a price point that people can afford and not be tempted to move or buy it by a house. And so we're, we have tenants that are highly qualified above average income. And most of them had at least a month or two savings so that even though they lost jobs and went on unemployment, they still paid us. They made it a priority because their credit's important to them. So they're not okay. going to just walk away. So that's been a benefit of where we have invested in central Pennsylvania is we're in very good areas with strong school districts, people want to stay. Mm -hmm. And we're in an area, this is really, really important, that has less supply than the demand for rental housing. 
So yeah. that keeps me full and it doesn't give people a lot of options to move um, unless they really, really, really want to, or they don't like you. And so that's, that's, you know, done well for us. I, love I also it. have two complexes in Atlanta and in Atlanta, they suffered a little more because some of the renters, you know, we took over properties in October. So we bought two mm-hmm. complexes in October and we're still kind of turning some of the original tenants that had been there. Mm-hmm. And in one of our complex there, they were much more highly in the restaurant and hotel industry. Oh. And so they lost jobs. Yeah. And what we found through this is that quite a few of them are actually paid cash under the table. So they weren't able to get oh. unemployment benefits. So they really are struggling to pay. But again, we've been very, very gracious with them. And this month we're at 86% collected on one on the, the complex that has struggled a little more, but they're faithfully making payments. And in April, we were at about the same point. And eventually we were up into 97% collected. So 86 still isn't that bad. I mean, considering the global pandemic, that's not terrible. Correct. And the other one, the other complex were at 92 or 93% now. So we've been very pleasantly pleased that it has gone as well as it has, but I cannot tell you how critical it is that you have a really good team that's constantly communicating in a very gracious way that makes people understand we are here for you. We don't want to kick you out. We're not waiting for the next eviction court, but just work with us and, you know, be faithful and we'll be good to you. Well, I heard a couple things I like there. Um, I'm 100% rent collected through April and May, and I'm just like you. I want to buy a value-add property that's in a good area. So I never want to buy a luxury property, although I have townhomes that are considered luxury townhomes. They're not. They're not in a high, high high-end area where I'm 20 30% above the average rent. I'm actually, it's it's a newer townhome, but in a very good, affordable area with a ton of jobs. And I love that because my renters have great credit for the most part. They have jobs and they have savings and they don't want to be evicted and they don't want to have issues with you know, me, me coming to collect rent. And so I did the same thing as you. I communicated with them. I said, rent is always due, but guess what? I want it to be a win-win scenario. If you guys are struggling, let's talk. Let's work through this together. I have to pay my mortgage. You still have to pay your rent, but let's work through it together. And And so I see a lot of investors that they want to do a deal so bad and want to do a value add deal so bad, they'll buy in in places that you got to carry a gun to collect rent and, and places where there's a ton of crime or it's, you know, severely, you know, drug or or crime ridden. That's, that's a place you're going to have issues. So I would say. And those are the deals that the IRR looks incredible on paper. Because mm-hmm. you're taking on a lot of risk for that return. Yep. And it's not likely you're going to actually hit those returns. So I learned that lesson the hard way on a small scale. Because at mm-hmm. first, my, my goal was income. And I chased a few. I bought a three unit and a single in a really rough area. Because mm-hmm. I bought them for pennies on the dollar. And the rent was still great. I lost more money and more time and sleep on those four units with a third party property manager than I did on all the other ones I had combined. And I sold them after a year and a half and I learned that lesson. Uh, But yeah, when people chase yield, they chase that return on income. They, they, they do the deal because they can actually win the bid. There's danger. There's risk. There's a reason for that. Yep. You you need a good tenant class. So make sure you pay attention to to the tenant class that's going to rent your unit, what amenities the community or surrounding areas have, what other rental properties are doing, what they're struggling with. 
and communicate to your to your renters. I, I think we're about out of time, Anna. Um, anything else that you think would be super valuable for my listeners to hear about building a portfolio, retiring from your job early, anything you want to add? I think primarily, Sam, it's just this is the time to really get educated. If you haven't already started doing deals, spend this time, you know, align yourself with some really good people and educators, get educated, get the knowledge and take some action. Dabble your toes in it if you haven't really gotten started and and buy something small that you can fail small on until you fail your way up and, and have some wins and some successes. And you've really got to right now learn, if you aren't already, to become more resilient than you ever knew you possibly could be. Because mm-hmm. the key to success long-term in this industry, through ups and downs, you know, good times and recession and quarantine kind of times, mm-hmm. is resilience and grit and determination that you're going to figure it out and you're going to get creative, whatever it takes. For me, it took years to get creative to figure out how to fund deals when the deals were there and the money wasn't. And you're going to see that now. So okay. get creative. Align yourself with people that do have grit and money and creativity if you don't and start getting out there and putting yourself out there, taking small calculated risks, but but committing to to still doing deals, not letting fear and no and the hurdles to stop you. So that's, I think, my best advice, you know, in getting through a recession is just learn, do it, jump over the hurdles and align yourself with really good people that can get you where you need to go. I love it. Uh, I love it. Anna, thanks so much for everything. I mean, what an inspiring story. Being able to retire from your day job. I mean, your career, you know, it's not even a day job. You had a very successful career. And so I love what you've done. I love the infinite returns that you've built for you and your family. And I love that you're doing big deals now. And and I'm excited to see what you do. And I'm, and, and I'm honestly, the coolest part about this call for me was that you did a recession resistant analysis last year because you saw the recession coming just like a lot of us did. I love that. And I feel like that's one of the biggest takeaways, although we had a lot on this call, that was one of the biggest takeaways is look at your portfolio and assess it and see if you're recession proof or not. How do people get in contact with you if they want to invest with you, if they want to, I know you're doing coaching right now, which I think would be hugely valuable for people. I would say, you know, if someone wants to get into real estate investing on would be a great coach. Thank you. Thank you. So yeah, I'm starting my coaching program back up actually starting in June. So I have an application process if people are interested in that. You can email me at info at reimom.com. My website is reimom.com. And the same email if you're interested in passive investing and, and seeing if your investment goals are aligned with the deals that we're doing. Awesome. Awesome. I'm going to put that in the show notes as well. And I'll make sure people see that because I I think that's a great opportunity. I love your name, REI Mom. That's awesome. (laughs) Thank Um, you so much. My my biggest motivation, and and I'll end with this, my biggest motivation for investing in real estate is to be a a great dad and teach my kids financial literacy. But also, we're planning a one-year sabbatical and we're going to take our kids. You know, you only have them for 18 years and you're going to find that out in the next year that 18 years flew by really fast. And so with that knowledge, I want to be able to have the money and the investments to take my kids on a couple big vacations. And one of them is going to be a year long and spend some quality time together. That's what it's all about. That's why we do what we do to, to make those memories and, and make our life count and those relationships, you know, to have time for. So it's awesome. Awesome. Absolutely. Awesome. All righty, ma'am. Thank you so much for, for, uh, for being on and um, I'm sure we'll talk again soon. So,